Sharai, the podcast co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bern. Welcome to a new episode of Sharai, the podcast. My name is Serena Tolino. And my name is Gianluca Parolin. In this episode, we are delighted to have as a guest Marion Katz from New York University. Welcome, Marion. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Marion. What do you like to do in your free time? Well, um, I'm a New Yorker, so I have to admit that the thing I'm most excited about right now is that my husband and I each year garden an infinitesimal plot in the NYU urban farm. So I'm looking forward to cultivating some cherry tomatoes. Cherry tomatoes, what else are you cultivating there? We usually go for kale, basil, and green peppers. Lovely. For Do you also have recipes for that? Well, I've got to say, it's all pretty basic, and we tend to eat things sort of raw and enjoy the freshness. So. Healthy, then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Marion, you are one of our speakers at the roundtable discussion we will have at the beginning of the conference in London on Islamic law and popular culture. What will be your main argument during the roundtable? So my current research is on the history of the law of marriage, and specifically I'm interested in the question of wives' domestic labor. And in the course of this research, one thing that I very swiftly discovered is that there's a really large sort of apparent discrepancy between what the fiqh says about this issue, which is in general, although one can nuance this, that wives have no legal obligation to provide housework to their husbands, and what you can find in other kinds of sources, particularly narrative sources that seem as if they're probably a lot closer to people's sort of common sense lived expectations of how a marital household will work. And trying to work through the, you know, sort of disconnect between those two things, I've sort of tried on different models. I mean, there would be a sort of conventional model of, well, this is what the law is. Do people follow it? Right. But I've sort of moved away from that somewhat to think of uh, fiqh as even for the, you know, sort of individual elite male scholars who were writing fiqh and elaborating it. I've started of thinking of it as something that's playing a very specific role for them and that we should really understand as one component of many ways of dealing with a multidimensional institution like marriage. So that's why I think it's so important to bring in uh, kinds of sources that maybe aren't inside this sort of you know, sort of magic circle of scholarly discourse about Islamic law. So sources, in a way, are what is important to integrate through popular culture. And in a way, it's a bit trickier for those who look at the pre-modern period than for those who look at more contemporary times. Have you faced this uh, challenge yourself and how have you solved it? Absolutely. And I, I cannot claim to have solved it in any ultimate sense of that word. But first of all, I just have to acknowledge that I'm not sure that anything that I'm working with is technically speaking popular culture, right? I mean, it may be that if I had delved deeply into, say, shadow plays, I might have found relevant material. 
but I'm really working with texts. I'm working with texts that are in, you know, sort of formal classical Arabic. So, I, you know, there's a sense in which I'm not dealing with popular materials in the sense that they give any unfiltered picture of what people who, you know, sort of weren't well-to-do or weren't literate might have thought or done, right? But I can, I do feel that by drawing in a wider collection of sources, I can get a little bit more of a sense of the parts of the literary corpus that, you know, might have been accessible to and disseminated to ordinary people, right? And I think, you know, if you look at sort of like didactic stories, right, you know, like, uh, if you look at anecdotes about pious men and women, for instance, I cannot prove for sure that these were used in sermons, for instance, in individual cases. But I think that gets us a little closer to the kind of material that an ordinary person might have been exposed to in the context of, say, a sermon or in terms of just the kind of pious lore that might have circulated beyond the circles where people really comprehended or cared about the technicalities of legal discourse. And I suspect this allows you also to reassess the more conventional sources that scholars of pre-modern Islamic law are more accustomed to work with, like the fiqh genre. Exactly. I feel as if looking, you know, sort of trying to broaden the the types and genres of sources that we're looking at beyond the specific scholarly discourses that are immediately involved in elaborating the law, I think that even helps us to understand better how elite male scholars were relating to the law. So, I mean, one of the sort of offshoots of this book that I just finished is an article that's sort of revisiting the question of, legally speaking, was marriage conceived of as being like a sale, right? Where the husband is sort of like purchasing sexual access to his wife. And, you know, I think one of the things that you can show is I really am not sure about the early period that's been so thoroughly examined by Keisha Ali in her amazing book. But I can say that if you get a couple of centuries later, you have, you know, scholars who are very centrally involved in this process and who use this class sort of stepping back and saying, but yeah, that's not what marriage is like, right? Um, And, you know, on grounds like, for instance, like, well, we know that, you know, the sexual benefits of marriage are mutual and shared. So like, don't they cancel out, right? And so like, I think by widening our aperture to sort of understand the ways in which fiqh models aren't just intuitively obvious, transparent descriptions of either of the way things actually are, or of even the way people desired things to be, we get a better view, you know, like we get more perspective on what in individual cases people might have actually expected Thuk to do, right? And, you know, like, I'm not trying to refute or reject the idea that there are major areas in which Thuk really is congruent with people's vision of how things really should be, right? But I think that there are times when it's not, (laughs) you know, like when there isn't a direct one-to-one correspondence. And I think marriage is a really good test case because almost all ordinary people get married, right? So like this is a point where 
fact discourses sort of intersect with the everyday lives of the majority of people. And you spoke a bit already about the challenges of sources when looking at popular culture, especially in the pre-modern period. I know you are not a fan of using pre-modern as a big label for uh, the entire period, um, but let's call it pre-modern for now. But I was wondering, in your work, you also dealt a lot with the challenge of how to reconstruct the voices of, of ordinary women, which is another level uh, that makes it even more complicated. And do you have maybe any inputs or any ideas on that? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that in my own project, I regretfully decided I just couldn't do that. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, like I found claims that male scholars were making about the strategies and attitudes that they perceived women as having. And those are not, you know, like necessarily to be disregarded. Right. But at the same time, when I was trying to think about what would be the meanings that were invested in housework, which, again, was my main theme, you know, like by women for Later times, we can sometimes find instances of women's religious discourses <laughs> that use these motifs, like, say, South Asian Sufi-inflected women's spinning songs or grain-grinding songs where domestic labor and spirituality get melded in really fantastic ways, right? I just haven't found that for the times and places that I'm trying to examine, so... Sometimes our sources really don't give us exactly what we would want. <laughs> Marion, do you have any recommendations for things that we should read ahead of the roundtable discussion? Well, I've got to say that two of the things that really inspired me in my work, and I think are really thought-provoking for anyone going to the conference, one of them is by one of my co-presenters. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the things that really helped me to think about marriage and fiqh models and the way that ordinary people actually, you know, sort of like work with <laughs> those discourses would be a juxtaposition of Yosef Rappaport's Marriage, Money and Divorce <laughs> in Medieval Islamic Society and my co-presenters of Amir Husseini's Marriage on Trial. Because like for me, the juxtaposition of those two works was really eye-opening Because I felt as if even though it's completely different times, places, there is absolutely no direct continuity between the two, you can see some of the same phenomena going on with, say, the idea that, say, women being entitled to certain financial payments from their husbands, whether it be mahr or nafaka, that The issue is not that the women get those payments, right? Like in both cases, you see a lot of cases <laughs> where that is not actually coming to pass, but it's that the women can leverage those legal entitlements. And so in a lot of ways, the maneuverings of spouses, and obviously we're seeing spouses who are in conflict in both cases. That's why they're in the documentary, you know, the legal record <laughs> uh, in one way or the other. But What we see is not that the legal model is reflecting what they do or even dictating what they do, but that the legal claims that are assigned to the two spouses define the kinds of legal maneuvers that they can make. They define the kind of claims that they either actually make in court or the potential of making a claim in court shifts the power balance within the relationship. And so, like, 
I just found that enormously illuminating. And I think it's been quite inspiring to my work. And so I'm really looking forward to the panel to see more of that kind of synergy going on between scholars of different approaches. I was wondering how the juxtaposition that you were discussing between Yossi's and Ziba's work actually happened. How did it happen? I mean, so wait, wait, how did, how did in the your, part... In your reading, did it happen by chance in your reading? Well, I mean, part of it is that, like most people, I teach much more broadly than I, <laughs> you know, research, right? And so I think... Initially, the reason that I read works by sociologists and anthropologists who work on contemporary material was simply because if I just gave all courses that were all about the 12th to 15th century, my enrollments would be sad and my employers would be mad. (laughs) So that wouldn't be good. And so, you know, particularly for undergraduate courses. Obviously, I design my syllabi much more broadly. (laughs) Um, But like, I've got to say that experience teaching from a very early stage of my career really opened my eyes to the fact that I should be reading much more broadly, (laughs) Um, you know, even for the purposes of my own research. So experimenting in the classroom, as usual, uh, is, you know, the key to success. Exactly. (laughs) Totally. So you say two magic words. One is syllabus and one is teaching. So um, now I'd like to ask you, in a course on Islamic law, when and where and how would you introduce a discussion on Islamic law and popular culture? Well, I mean, as I said, particularly for undergraduates, I think I have an Islamic law and society course for undergraduates. And it's not chronologically structured. It's thematic units, right? So I'm giving them some of those juxtapositions. But I would say, you know, one example of popular culture coming in would be Nadia Sonnefeld's great book about Khulur in modern Egypt and being able to do something like show students the cartoons that she analyzes, where it's this very, you know, like you would think, maybe On the one hand, a technical legal point, like she gives examples of actual, you know, Egyptian legislators arguing about Hadith, right? And obviously it's a material issue, you know, like it's a very important thing on the ground. What kinds of divorces, you know, women can get on what terms, right? So I don't want to like, you know, sort of, I understand the discursive level isn't necessarily the most important one for the people who are directly affected. But I also think that it's just amazing when she brings in the cartoon, you know, cartoons that have like an enormous woman, you know, looming over her tiny head-packed husband. And, you know, like, it's like, okay, you know, you're really seeing, you know, you're really seeing the kinds of feelings that this might, uh, you know, sort of evoke for people who are sort of on the ground and not necessarily trained in or invested in the kind of technical level of Islamic legal argumentation that we often focus on. And again, I feel as if that, you know, resonates for me, for example, with some of the examples that Yossi Rappaport comes up with in his book, where you have someone like Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziya raising the specter of wives, you know, like getting their hapless husbands thrown in jail through baseless claims of non-support or whatever, you know, so... 
I just feel as if some of that material or, or say, you know, uh, for another participant in, in the panel, Jakos Govgard Peterson, you know, he really, I think it was a presentation at a previous ISILS conference. He really gave me the idea of thinking more about, say, the Jakubian building and the whole, the novel and the whole, the way that the issue of abortion comes up and then the way that that issue plays out differently if you watch the the Musalsal version, you know, like the, the serialized TV version of it. So just sort of thinking about perceptions of Islamic law and I mean, you know, like I understand that there are in some ways that things like that can be also seen as top down, but like the way they get refracted through parts of culture that can be pretty different from having a conversation at Al-Azhar, right? Thank you so much, Marion. And we are looking forward to the opening roundtable discussion for the conference in London. Thank you, Marion. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you also from my side. See you in London. Mm-hmm.